Hello and welcome to Crackle Comics episode 41 for the week of November 3rd, 2020 and a week that's felt like a month, but hopefully we can bring you some entertainment and uh, talk some comics this week. I'm Mike, joined alongside by Vincent. And uh, just us again this week is uh, Dan is once again MIA. I think he'll be back next week. He's out traveling. So it's up to us with a very huge deadline of books on the rundown to get through. So uh, if you got nothing else to report, Vince, I'm ready to jump in the rundown of you are. Yep. Okay. With that, let's start off with Amazing Spider-Man number 41.LR. And this is Nick Spencer and Matthew Rosenberg, Federico Vicentini. And, hey, it's the second one of these point issues. It's filled with a lot of action this time around and a lot of moving chess pieces, which, in my opinion, is fine. This is what these issues are kind of here to do, to branch the gap between issues. But at the same time, why do these exist? Why does it need to exist? I, I don't know, but at least I'm enjoying them. So, you know, you, you counterbalance the two of them. If I'm enjoying them, I can't really complain. But we see Sin Eater rescued by what's left of his followers and shown that the other spider characters are terrorizing the city. They quickly beat up the new warriors. So as quickly as they come in, they're beaten down. So Vince, once again, please tell me what's the purpose of the new warriors. Uh, Doctor Strange confronts Black Cat wanting the hand of the Vashanti back, but she only agrees to give it up if she can also come and help Pete. And she kind of goes on about how they've changed their relationship after, uh, you know, Spencer in the beginning of his run had Pete reveal his identity to uh, Black Cat again. And, seeing you know he saved her and hunted so they're much back on good terms so that's a huge kind of payoff so now that pete saved her she's got to go save pete she wants to repay him for that and then mj is stuck in traffic on one of the bridges in new york and gets into a car accident but is saved by norman osborne and last we see sin eater shifting his focus to cleansing the next big case on his list of people because you know he got norman he, uh, he cleansed him, but the next person on his list is Morlin. So Spencer's just pulling everyone in here. We got Goblin, we got Sin Eater, we got Morlin, we've got Kindred. Uh, you know, Last Rites is uh, kind of teaming up a heavy hitter dose of, of villains and moving chess pieces here that's still pretty fun. It still seems like a Spencer-written issue of Amazing Spider-Man. I don't know which, you know, parts Spencer and Rosenberg are writing differently. Uh, from each other, but it seems consistent across the board. And Federico Vicentini's art, still uh, really fun and good to look at. Uh, I would also, you know, welcome him as the regular artist on Amazing Spider-Man, or at least, the, you know, the B to the Patrick Gleason A that we're getting. And it looks like that might be the case, at least for these LR issues. But uh, still good stuff from Amazing Spider-Man. I know you're no longer reading the book, uh, probably going to come back to it in trade, but uh, I'm enjoying it as this event is, you know, every week. And it looks like we have two issues next week. I think number 52 and 52 LR are both next week, which is uh, I'm wondering if that's too much and maybe we should just get a chapter a week. But uh, I'll throw it to you for Black Widow. Again, having not read the book, I'm assuming this is the weird fake version of the New Warriors that never got their book published. Or maybe it's not. I don't it, know. Well, I, I showed you images of it. It's not. It's the... The, the cool version of the new warriors, uh, at least your version of the new warriors. I didn't see none of the new characters that got their book canceled were on the page. It was a uh, night thrasher 
it, primarily Night Thrasher and uh, Speedball on the pages. Okay. In Black Widow, number three, Kelly Thompson, Elena Casagrande, colors by Joy Blair. So Nat, she's had a great life with her husband and her stinky child. There's some nice kind of family comedy in the first couple pages. The kid sneaks in on the parents who are in bed. It's not like it's a sex scene or anything, but they're like, how did how did he get in here? And then the there are jokes about his his diaper and stuff. But this whole thing still has Hawkeye and Winter Soldier stumped on what to do about it. And they're just squatting in the forest and out of nowhere, Yelena Belova shows up. And she's there, she's trying to dissuade them from fucking around with things. And mostly because she has it under control or she's monitoring the situation because she's actually undercover as Nat's babysitter. And also somehow she snuck, you know, she snuck some DNA and she can confirm that the baby is genetically Nat's baby and the guys. And there's still a timeline question mark on that because she only disappeared like three months ago and, you know, she wasn't visibly pregnant. So, you know, it could be a clone or whatever. All she just, all she said was the DNA matches. And so we, we've already seen Arcade is behind this. We've seen Red Guardian tease. They also have some other people with them, Viper, AKA sometimes known as Madame Hydra, Snapdragon and Weeping Lion. Those two characters I'm not as familiar with. They're more minor. Lion is very butthurt about this plan and he really hates Nat Natasha. So he wants, the plan is just to take her off the board, to have her not be a spy slash superhero so they can go up, get up to other villainous shit. But he wants to kill her because um, he has a huge grudge. And so he sent in goons to kind of take the family hostage and kill them to really like, you know, mess with her mind and really screw her up. And again, like we've seen in, in prior issues, she taps into kind of her subconscious skills and instincts as the Black Widow, takes them all down, but she gets hit with something towards the end, kind of like a trank dart or something of that nature. And it seems that maybe it triggers all her memories back. There's like this double page spread and it's like a web and there's all these different scenes from you know major moments in her history, but it's not entirely clear that's what happens. Again, the art here by Cascarande and Belair is a gem. I think this is the best issue yet as far as really showing off their art. There's some great action storytelling, including a double page splash or spread really that they have storytelling in motion through the spread. And then that knockout scene that I mentioned with the web and all the prior moments, though, I think some of that, I, I, I stared at it for a while and I'm pretty certain that there's definitely different art styles in there. I think they pulled specific panels from prior comics and, you know, whether it was Cas Grande doing it or some kind of collaboration with like Marvel's production team, probably not. It was probably Cas Grande maybe Belair did a lot of it or maybe, you know, a all of that on that level, but I'm not a hundred percent certain how they did it, but it's a really cool uh, two pages. I think the writing from Thompson on this series, or at least this issue particularly, it's kind of serviceable. Like I'm not totally blown away by the writing. I found Yelena's dialogue a little clunky. There's like a, I think there's like a bare attempt at trying to convey an accent, her Russian accent. Um, as far as, you know, the way she speaks, you know, the best attempt at doing an accent in written dialogue, but it just isn't there. It doesn't land. 
And then in general, I think, I mean, the writing's just fine, but um, I'm not trying to diss the writing, but as far as talking about all the other things, the key uh, standout here for me is completely are and worth reading for that for sure. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to dispute that. I'm kind of in agreement there with you, but I mean, to, to compare this to Wonder Woman, which are two runs uh, kind of kicked off around relatively the same time, I'd say I'd prefer this book to the current Wonder Woman based on art side and writing side kind of right now. Um, I think, you know, Thompson has a good voice for all the characters involved here, especially when you throw Bucky and uh, Clint into the mix, even though I'm not the biggest fan of the more jokey Clint Barton, but hey, that's his character now. Uh, but I think, you know, she's doing a good job with it. Um, but yeah, the, the standout here is the, the Elena Casagrande art with the Jordi Valerix. So absolutely breathtaking and completely becoming one of my fastest rising favorite art teams here at Marvel. Um, and can't wait to see what they keep delivering on this book because, you know, this was the biggest, you know, action-based issue we've got so far. So yeah, I mean, I'm in complete agreement where this is probably the best issue we've got so far uh, because it, because of the showcase for that. Over in Batman number 102, it's James Tynan the fourth, Carlo Hagulayan, and Carlos DeAnda for only three pages, and then inks is Danny Miki. This is part one of Ghost Stories as we are introduced to Gotham's newest vigilante, the Ghost Maker, who has entered Gotham to clean it up because Batman has failed his city after the events of Joker War, and he took out a club of these uh, people called Grinners who are people whose faces are still stuck in a smile from being exposed to Joker toxin. And they were kind of like thugs that work for Joker. Uh, so like, they kind of like have this little hideout and uh, Batman's trying to like go investigate them um, when, but Ghostmaker's suit, I guess is like all high tech shenanigans and gimmicks. And uh, it's able to block like Batman and Oracle signals. So he thinks that there's a whole bunch of live people in there, but he goes in and they're already dead. And also it's like shown in a flashback that Bruce and Ghostmaker were like training around the same time when Bruce was young. And this Ghostmaker has that attitude of I, number one, I kill people because it actually gets the job done. And he also is like, I'm better than Bruce because I beat him when he was younger. Uh, So he's got that overconfidence thing going for him. So, all right, great. Barbara's still acting as Oracle here, which uh, I mean, that's cool, but, I feel like completely contradicts from what we saw what Barbara's was doing in issue 50, where she was not only acting as Batgirl, but also using her power as Barbara Gordon to help on both fronts. But I, I, you know, Batgirl's book ended. So there's, there's not going to be an answer to, to that in an upcoming issue and see how they played off. Uh, And, you know, Tynan runs the, runs the Batman office pretty much as he's running the flagship. So I guess he trumps the, uh, you know, what the book that just ended was doing. But, you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, Harley gets an apartment and also Clown Hunter is still a thing. That annoying 13-year-old kid who's just trying to kill Joker thugs or, or, or more people, I guess. I don't know why Batman hasn't just, like, thrown him in jail. He's more annoying than Anarchy, I feel, at this point. He's like this generation's Anarchy, but, like, worse. And Ghostmaker's trying to kill clown hunter so batman has to stop both of them and yeah i i i'm feel like i'm going to give this book one more issue i there's just something about tynan's batman that is like good in small areas and then when he's like 
trying to introduce so many new villains where Batman's rogues gallery is already miles, miles deep. It's like, he doesn't need any more new villains because you're the only one that's going to use them. And then they're just going to go away into the ether for forever until someone else remembers them and then pulls them out for like, you know, the fourth or fifth Batman books, 10 years down the line. I, I wish we would, you know, get something more let's you know revolutionize some other villains that we haven't seen used in a while instead of adding kind of forgettable guys like ghostmaker looks like a white deadpool like he's white suited deadpool and he's got his swords it i don't i don't get it uh the carlo pegulian art's fine danny mickey's inks is fine uh you know this isn't jorge Mena, this isn't guillaume march so I, I kind of feel like a down issue in general here this maybe gets one more, one or two more issues for me, and I might just bow out again. Um, but at least uh, I'm excited to talk about the next book that we have in the rundown. Is this is arguably the biggest book of the week, and I think it really is the biggest book of the week. Yeah, I think it's the biggest without a doubt. This is crossover number one by Donnie Cates and Jeff Shaw, colors by D. Kniff. This is the highest selling launch issue for Image Comics since Danger Girl back in 1998, and. Danger Girl was a Wildstorm book, so that's further, um, you know, historical uh, context. The title page opens with a snarky quote from Frederick Wortham, but it's paralleled against this gem of a quote from Todd McFarlane, which is, kids love chains. And kind of the initial premise of this book, it hits you with a, you know, really makes you think type of wording. So it asks, who is more real, us or Superman? Um, because none of us are going to have the same impact as Superman. You know, when we're long dead, Superman is still going to exist. He and he predates us. And even if humans leave the Earth, you know, DC Warner and that corporate conglomerate probably still going to exist. Probably going to take Superman to the skies. Um, even though I'm not really sure how public domain laws should work, but you know, since Mickey Mouse predates Batman and Disney is the media giant conglomerate i don't think any of these characters will ever be public domain so the actual story here is that in 2017 in denver colorado basically a bunch of fictional comic book superheroes and characters just suddenly appear in the middle of the city essentially and essentially like a crisis type of thing but also them coming in in a crisis thing with they were also in the middle of their own crisis stupid crossover thing so their their little literal comic book reality merges into real reality and a superhero at a certain point basically puts a, a giant force field around the entire state of colorado and inside the bubble superheroes and villains and whatever else and like comic book civilians just kind of keep doing their thing they're battling or whatever in there and our main character here her name is ellipses and she works at a comic book shop and things like cosplay and comic book stores they're now considered immoral and there's like this religious crusade against them but this shop that she works at which is possibly or at least based on its name uh, on the sign is possibly the last comic store alive uh, that exists, but they only deal in pre-crossover comics because, you know, after that happened, comics changed drastically. 
you know, companies change and everything like that. And so there's this anti-superhero, anti-capes and masks type of thing. So there, there, it's kind of like, a, you know, illicit substances. And then things take a big twist when there's a kid who they think has, is about to try and steal some comics. And so they confront the kid and they, the kid turns around and her face is covered in Bendy dots because this is a comic book kid or, you know, however you want to describe the semantics, who has escaped from the bubble. And everyone freaks the hell out. Everyone evacuates the shop. Police are being called. Religious fanatics are showing up. And another character named Ryan, his dad is one of these religious fanatics, and his dad caught him with comic books. And so he forces his son to throw a Molotov into the store. So they're all running away. And the kid, the this comic book kid, draws the hero that helped her escape from the bubble and that takes people in and out of the bubble. And she draws Superman. I mean, it's clearly Superman. Well, that's the uh, final tease. We have references here to Savage Dragon, Batman, Spider-Man. She wears an invincible shirt. There's not really any. Well, I'm sure Kate's had to clear it, but that has way less legal ramifications than some of these other things, which we could potentially see or get teased further. There's a pretty explicit reference to Rawhide Kid. Um, Thor is also referenced. The art from Shaw and Kniff is fucking amazing. They switch between the styles, you know, what they're presenting as the real world and then these various comic book styles. As, as far as the story in general, the premise and everything, this isn't like the, the most original concept in the world. And some of the parts of the story that we have in this first short lean heavily into tro certain tropes, like, you know, the religious fervor and the oppressed nerds and everything like that. But as far as the general idea of this and kind of what it's trying to say, this is just pure cotton candy to me. This is like the perfect comic book for me. Um, and I'll leave it there and shut up and let Mike talk a little bit, you know, what he thought in the comic. But then I also have kind of a, another couple other interesting points on a more meta level that I want to touch on. No, I, I, I kind of had a huge smile on my face the minute you got the Wortham quote. And then the Todd Chains quote is like right under it. It's kind of perfect. Like that just set the tone for it right away. Um, and then like I, I I kind of have this thing about Donny Cates right now. And I, I think you might agree, but I, I don't think you've read as much of his work that I have. But in terms of looking at Donny Cates's recent work from about 2018 to now, I don't think there's anyone that really epitomizes the fun factor of a comic book more than Donny Cates. I, I'm at that point where I can go, Donny Cates equals fun to me. I know I'm guaranteed to have some sort of fun run. And the guy absolutely nails how to have a fun comic book with characters that are engrossing and engaging while also having these high stakes, totally bombastic, world shattering catastrophes like level threats that are going on in the background and really invoke the only like that you this can only happen in a comic book like that really kind of struggle how you would ever depict that in a cartoon or a movie to me i all of his books kind of have that feeling to me right now and this is kind of that engaged up to 11 but also still remaining to have really kind of great peaceful moments of characters with you know ellie trying to comfort the kid is like all this shit's kind of crazy going around behind it and then, like, Jeff Shaw and Kniff's 
art here is just simply amazing. Like this, yeah, like this is one of the best books of the week um, and totally lived up to the hype. It's our, it's our cool cover Friday for the week. I love the cover too. Like I, I really, really enjoyed this and I'm wondering how, how long this is going to go. Uh, I don't know if this is a six issue or a 12 issue. I mean, definitely it's a mini series, right? But, you know, also probably, you know, already one issue in, I'm already primed for like, this can be a sequel here. Um, this is definitely, you know, it's a win for image. It's a win for Donny Cates. It's a win for Jeff Shaw. You can leave everyone involved here. And the fact that I don't know if you read Donny Cates's, you know, little letter right up in the back of this, but it seems like it, this is an idea that a lot of people are sold on. And he's given being given a lot of leeway by other companies to kind of get away with what he can put and throw in here. Because like the first kind of character we see on the page is like it's Captain Marvel, but it's just a blue suit instead of a red suit. Like it seems like they're letting letting this whole team and crew here play around and have fun uh, with not having, you know, too much leeway crackdown on them, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah, I mean, it's a gray area. Look, I'm 100 percent certain that Marvel is not going to allow him to show Spider-Man on the page. And DC is not going to allow him to show Superman, despite what this final page teases. I can say that for certain. That's just the way it works legally, especially with both those companies, you know, owned by giant corporations. Theoretically, you know, like he could have, I don't even know what the equivalent character is, but like I could imagine, you know, Valiant saying like, yeah, sure. Put Ninjak on the page, you know, market for us a bit. But I don't, I don't imagine he's doing that either. I think we'll see, you know, a lot of more subtle stuff. And it's interesting, and I haven't been keeping up with this book either, but he kind of did like a soft version of this in Thor, right? Isn't there, there's something, there's a reference in Thor where there's a reference to Superman, I believe. Uh, or or he references like the DC Universe. Yeah. Destroyed, right? um, and then he kind of did something yeah. Yeah. similarly wacky, but an actual legitimate authorized crossover with the Fortnite stuff. But yeah, I'm not, and I'm not even certain. Like, I don't know. I think, you know, I think if he wants to, you know, tell a defined, definitive, you know, contained story, it could definitely be a miniseries. But I think there's a lot of room in this premise that he could make this you know, a long-lasting ongoing. Because you think once we get into that bubble where we see more characters coming out of that bubble, there's so many stories there. And I think there are certain teases with Ellipses, the main character here, because she talks about, it's not implied she's a superhero or anything like that. And she's a seemingly a normal human, but she was in that bubble and she escaped that bubble. Her family's trapped in the bubble, assuming they're still alive. So I think there's a lot of thing, a lot of like things that nuggets that he can dig into here. And I could definitely see this going more than, you know, five, six, even 12 issues. And, and like that, it's it's the perfect place for an IP generation here where you can just keep doing sequels down the line. Like, what's the crossover universe like 20 years later, 50 years? Like, you can keep expanding on it and do whatever. It's a yeah. really prime prime and ready cut thing to see what will come out of this. Yeah, and, and an interesting comparison as far as, you know, expansion of it is I would actually kind of bring to mind uh, Dial H the Dial H series that we really loved because, you know, as this goes further, if there are other crossover elements, once we get in the bubble, like, you know, are there funny animals in there too? Is there manga? Like how does all this stuff factor in? Because, you know, this, the premise that he set up here. So on the art side as well, there's a ton of room for exploration. 
But I wanted to talk about, you, you mentioned the editorial. And the one thing that hit me in the editorial is he, he talks about, um, I mean, he talks about some personal stuff with his personal life. Like, I mean, he's been pretty open about it. I believe he used to be like, he used to suffer from substance abuse issues and everything like that. And he, yeah. had, a, he had a big health scare and uh, kind of one of his breakout books through image, I think it's called, uh, damn it, I forget what it's called. Uh, God Country? Uh, no, no, no. Before that, one of the, his like, one of his breakout books at Image was essentially like about that, uh, about alcoholism. Um, was it Redneck? No, no, it's, I forget what it's called. But, and then, yeah, he's had, he's had other things. That, and then, and then apparently he had another health scare. I must have seen about that, but I, I don't, I never remember that. I vaguely uh, remember him talking about being in the hospital on Twitter, but I don't really remember it. And so, and, and then that second time he, you know, he came out with a different perspective and stuff. And, you know, we'll see as all his, you know, he brings out new projects and stuff. But besides that, you know, with his new perspective, he talked about how he was inspired, you know, by this book and just by his love of comics. He references how when he was 11 years old, he was reading Youngblood, Wildcats, Spawn, and Savage Dragon. Um, and of course, it makes sense, you know, it's this is an image book, so he's going to hype up image. But I think that's interesting because... I think I've talked about before. Um, it, it may have come up on the show at some point. I don't read a ton of Donny Cates stuff regularly for the show, but the past several years, I feel like we finally hit a point where some of the top names in both writing, and uh, I mean, it's it's also a thing in art, but you know, you don't necessarily. I don't know. It's not. I mean, artists are unfortunately not as big a name in today's comics, but we're finally having creators that unironically grew up loving image comics. Here's some just comparison that I thought about and, and was Googling. Um, and I swear I'm not trying to do an ageism here uh, thing here, but like, I'm just throw, throwing out some names, Matt Fraction, Kieran Gillen, Jason Aaron, Rick Remender, Jeff Johns, Hickman, Bendis, Brubaker. You know, those are all, those are the huge guys from the 2000s, the early 2010s that were at Marvel and DC. All of those guys are in their mid 40s to their early 50s, like all pretty much the same age, born in the 70s. And even the youngest among those, which is which is, has, is like fraction or, or around there, he was in high school. He was 16 when Young Blood Number One came out, the first Image comic. And then all you know, most of those creators got into comics through whichever direction they came in, and, and then came up through the era of the comics culture when. You know, early image was considered, you know, terrible and embarrassing. It's like we moved past that. That's trash. It's, you know, clogging up the dollar bins, you know, ruining the industry and everything like that. And there's obviously some legitimacy to that, but it's not all the truth. And some of those creators, I mean, the, the older ones like Bendis was like kind of he was already working at like the very, very tail end of the 90s. Um, and then like Brubaker had a very like more indie focused early beginnings of his career. But Donny Cates was eight years old when Young Blood Number One came out, um, and you know he talks about reading them at, at eleven and such. And so, I, you know, I'm sure he realizes that Young Blood is not the best written comic book. You know, anyone can figure that out. But he knows in a steps, and and you know, isn't ashamed that that stuff is just fun. You know, artistically and just the concepts and everything, it's just crazy. It's fun, and he's cool with that. And there are a couple other examples, like probably the biggest example is Kirkman, 
who's like five years older than uh, Kate's and really more in line with those other guys. But he never like truly found his footing at the big two, but then essentially carried that image, you know, character on his image books. And, you know, he's arguably image's biggest name to this day. I mean, we're going to talk about a Kirkman book in a second. Um, and obviously Walking Dead and Invincible are massive hits that have gotten huge, you know, cross-media deals. And Kirkman, you know, coincidentally or not, is also the only partner of Image who's not a founder. Um, so you, obviously, you know, he encapsulates some of that energy and spirit of them. And I, I love how Cates has leaned into that energy in his Marvel work. And now that he's the biggest name in comics, you know, he's done work for Image before. God Country was a hit. God Country already has, you know, like a movie deal. But it looks like he's probably going to be doing more work with Image, you know, the publisher that inspired him way back then. And I'm pretty damn excited. Um, I think, you know, it's it's basically been an entire year or more that he's, you know, clearly the top name at Marvel as far as the sales on his books. Venom, like I was recently checking for various other things. Venom was literally Marvel's top selling book in like August, like May, August, November or something. Like three of the issues over the past six months were Marvel's best selling book. And granted, it's because he's introducing new characters and shit like that. But still, I mean, people are excited for a reason. That was, I mean, that was also prime and time ready of the gearing up for Absolute Carnage, which we both liked, by the way. And, uh, you know, 2020, I think we can sign of say that uh, with, with uh, you know, I, here, here's a positive for 2020. Donny Cates had a very, very good year, and it looks like he'll carry that torch for Marvel in 2021 as we await King in Black. So, and I, I, I don't know if you're looking forward to King in Black, but I'm really looking forward to it because it seems that Marvel is really cared about establishing this event in all kind of realms of their books right now so it seems like they're treating it more special than you know a war of the realms or a or an empire it seemed like it felt like it feels like any marvel book that i'm reading right now now given a fact that you know i'm there's i am reading venom i am reading thor and i am reading guardians but like the you can kind of see the you know the tent pools uh you know being hit uh, and starting to be de- uh, dug into the ground for King and Black in all kind of the areas. So it feels very ingrained in the entire Marvel Universe, much unlike where it's just like, well, uh, Empire has to happen. So it's happening now. Like it didn't feel like there was a true build up to it in other books other than just like, you know, the road to the Empire books. So hopefully the the success of Donny Cates carries on and continues through uh, because I've highly enjoyed a lot of his books. I'm um, talking about it, though. But I got nothing else to say other than I really want to see more from this. As And this is already a very impressive issue one. Yeah, I mean, I think this, and we'll talk probably more at the end of the show when we make our picks. But I actually think this is like the most excited I've been reading the number one issue, probably in, you know, 20 episodes or something. Really? Even with Firepower not being that long ago? Yeah, I mean, I think so. But also like, you know, Dan and I came into Firepower kind of sideways because we didn't read the prelude. Right, uh, right. That's the prelude on the show. So it's slightly different. But um, no, I mean, this, again, this is just like exactly the kind of comic that's like up my alley. You know, this is oh, like... Oh, yeah. I, I I was worried you weren't going to like this. But then I saw, like I said, that the that first page, I was like, oh, okay, he's going to love it. So... <laughs> it's, it's like Dial H mixed with like 
doomsday clock, but not cancerous. And with that, we'll we'll talk about DC Zombies, which, hey, th- this book still continues to be my favorite at DC. DC's Dead Planet number five, Tom Taylor, Trevor Harrison. Yeah, ha- happy to say this continues to be my favorite uh, series from DC. This is issue five of seven, and uh, two more to go after this. Issue four, we saw Superman and that kind of more heavy hitter crew head to space. And while they did that, Constantine put together a mission to pull off, you know, that he needed to do while the other people are away so they wouldn't notice him. And that's what we get in this issue. So what 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 they were doing while the other team was in space in the last issue, kind of a fun deal that he had going on there. So he gets word from Etrigan that Trigon will be there in three days. So Constantine has to assemble a crew to steal the Spear of Destiny and the staff of the wizard Shazam. So it's a Bat Family team-up with Damian, Batman, Cassandra Kane, and the now-married Jason Todd and Ravenger, along with Constantine and Swamp Thing as they head to Nanda Parbat to where they'll steal the spear. So John uses the spear to stab Ramakushna, and then he uses the cloak of Radman, Ragman to trap and double-cross uh, Deadman for the greater good because he knew they wouldn't let him out uh, if he took that spear. And then casualties suffered at the Rock of Eternity as Captain Marvel Jr., uh, Vince be interested to note, like, this is the full, like, Captain Marvel Jr., like, the original costume, not the new 52 over one, which was kind of cool to see. He, like, just takes Jason and rams him as hard as he can through a wall, just breaking his spine. Uh, so Jason's dead, uh, but Cass gets the staff uh, of the wizard, and she gets super power upgrade. So she says the magic word, and she gets uh, the power buff, which is really cool to see. I like that design by Harrison, too, for... Cassandra Kane's Batgirl costume, but now with like imbued, imbued with the powers of uh, the Wizard Shazam. Uh, the crew does head back, and everyone's pissed off at Constantine. And then the Spectre visits them to threaten him until John asks why, what he's motivated by, which is vengeance. And he's like, All right, I'll let you be. Uh, so it's all kind of ramping up here as we might be getting a cure for the virus, but you know, just as that's happening, we're going to get uh, Trigon, and we know there's infected Dark Side lying around. Uh, it's still fun. Still art, still great. Taylor nailing these characters. He managed to have great kind of personal moments uh, of establishing relationships with these characters in this different future setting, and then rips your heart out when uh, when one of them dies. Um, a very felt and lived-in world, and natural for like if the DC universe, like if this was just a full story that happened, you can believe it uh, because Taylor shines at those. Uh, you know, those interpersonal relationship moments between characters. And that's kind of why we like these DC characters and what makes us keep coming back to them. And he nails that. And it continues, you know, happy to say it continues in, uh, in DC's dead planet is uh, this looks forward to finishing. And I think he just finished up uh, hope at world's end, which uh, they granted him an extra chapter on that. So with that, we'll head to firepower number five. Yes, here is that other Kirkman book that we had mentioned here, joined by Chris Sammy and Matt Wilson. So we pick up with the one ninja dude interrupting the our main character's date night, which is where we left last issue off. The fight breaks out in the restaurant, and then Owen and Kelly run to find their kids who are also trying to fight back some of these ninja dudes. The son gets totally bonked. He's got, you know, some kind of cut or, you know, damage in his head so he just has a rush of blood down his face um it's, it's pretty funny looking through the whole issue everyone regroups the whole family's together 
uh, Kelly, the wife, takes a sword stab right into her side, just barely, like, you know, it's a major wound, but, you know, it's not through her organs and stuff. Owen then stabs Chick, and they all hit the road in a car running away. They escape the, uh, you know, the villains. But they accidentally take the friend of the two kids with them, and then there's a funny scene where he's like, um, where are you going? And they kick him out of the car. They seek refuge with a buddy, and Owen gets to spilling the beans on his full backstory to his kids. And then Stick shows up, you know, the Daredevil character, Stick. Um, once again, this is a good shit, you know, fantastic storytelling from Sam Nee, great popping colors from Matt Wilson, Kirkman with the dialogue. If I'm going to nitpick, which the only negative things on this book, uh, definitely this issue is, is nitpicking. But my nitpick would be the the daughter's dialogue. Some of it, it's a little, I didn't 100% buy it. She's like very snarky in a couple of scenes in this issue. Yeah, I mean, this is... It, it it is a solid book and uh i think it really you know it, this is the most action-packed issue we've got and uh you know kirkman samney wilson all nail it uh and what did you have any doubt at this point five issues in we keep loving this i think you me and dan would easily put this you know top five maybe top three books that we're reading right now so I, I'm not going to, you know, dispute anything here. Uh, the action's still great. Uh, the firepower effect still looks cool. And I, I think the interpersonal relationships of, you know, the way the family plays off of each other is great here. I love how uh, Owen's fighting these people while Kelly, his wife, is still trying to be the mom while also trying to involve herself in the action. It kind of feels like there's an MCU-level brand of humor, but... You know, I, I wasn't, uh, I think the humor worked here. I know that MCU level brand of humor can sometimes be annoying, but I, I think the way they play off of each other is really, really fun. And the, the great moment of where they just, they realize that their kid, their friend's kid is still, yeah, their, their kid's friend is still in the car and, uh, they're, they were like, oh yeah, we just drop them off like that. That was just played so perfectly on the page and really, really hit, I think across the board. So, yeah, this this continues to be great. Other than that, I don't have anything else to say on it if you don't. So, if not, I'll go right into Guardians and uh, another book that uh, I enjoyed this week, which was Guardians of the Galaxy number eight, as I poked the thing in. And, yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy number eight, Al Ewing, Marcio Tatara, Federico Bli. Uh, the game of Among Us continues as Rocket looks to clear Marvel Boy of the murder charges, and he succeeds in figuring it out. He seats all of them and all of these like delegates in the room and prevents any of them uh, from leaving. He seals the door. Uh, so, and then also kind of prevents any tele- telepathy shenanigans happening, which shows the Chitari delegate at this place was at the conference was a kind of a sleeper agent sent by this other alien called the profiteer. And inside the Chitari's chest is a bomb. So all, they're now all sealed in the room as this bomb's going to go off. So they're all trying to stop it. Well, uh, Rocket's trying to find out what's going on from the profiteer and they're able to like all deal with it. And it turns out that if this peace conference post empire was, you know, bugged up and didn't go as planned, it would start this thing called the snark war between these two other warring factions. And the profiteer would be able to profit off of that, obviously, as all of the weapons 
in the world uh, would kind of be on the line because there would be no uh, no limits on what uh, people would be buying in order to win. So that's why this was all set in. Uh, this one kind of the lizard guy delegate, I don't know which uh, Marvel alien race he is. Uh, he, he manages to get her to leave saying that something just uh, happened on his home world that completely blew it off the map and others. And they all think he's bluffing. Um, and they're like, the guardians are like, Hey, that was a pretty good bluff. You got us out of that. And he's like, Hey, I wasn't bluffing. My planet did just get wiped off the map and something is heading towards earth. And I think maybe you guys should investigate it. And it realizes that, Oh, what's heading towards earth. It's null as we, you know, prep up once again and gear up for King and black. As I was talking about earlier in the show that, uh, Marvel is treating King in Black as this very big event that's kind of radiating through all kind of aspects of the Marvel Universe as we get ready and ramp up for it. Uh, but another solid issue of Guardians is kind of a fun little two-issue arc with with this little peace conference and, you know, Rocket coming in to play P.I. Uh, fun stuff. Uh, you know, didn't love it, but didn't hate it. But like, you know, seven, seven out of ten, fine book. Wish Dan was here to, you know, give more thoughts on it, but I think he would like it too. Um, and going into Tom Taylor's second book of the week in Hellblazer. Yeah, over in Hellblazer, art by Derek Rock Robertson. So we open with the big reveal, uh, shocking moment of John Constantine has fucked the devil, who then explains that a minor demon in hell rose through the ranks, challenged him, he put him down a notch, but then John accidentally summoned him as a kid which resulted in his boyhood friend's death, and the demon possessed that child. It turns out JK, they didn't have sex, but John's friend Gary is the latest victim of the demon. He's now a ghost, kind of joins the crew. So the whole gang, which is John, the devil, ghost Gary, and his friend, his childhood friend and detective Aisha, go to confront the dead friend's father, who is under control, but they can't really do anything about it yet. They need more evidence. They need a warrant. The devil freaks out in frustration and rips the security guard's kidney out. Then the demon kid just comes across John while John's trying to figure out what to do next. And the, the kid's like, well, you're not going to beat up a little kid in public. And John just kicks the kid in the nuts. But then, you know, then they split off, essentially. Some stuff happens. Turns out that a certain judge in the area is a Satanist. So all it takes is a selfie with the guy himself, and he mocks up a warrant for them. Dead kid's dad wants to cooperate because he's not really happy with the situation. Um, and then in the end, Aisha goes home to her family, and the demon kid is playing with some kids, including Derek Robertson's very iffy interpretation of a PS4 control. This was good. It was fine. I don't, I don't, I don't have that much more to say. Uh, Robertson's art—it's like both, you know, what you want and expect from him, but other areas it's a little rough. Obviously, there's the shocking moment of, oh, John had sex with the devil, except he didn't, so it really doesn't matter at all. There's some pretty brutal scenes in this. There's like a double-page splash where they're going through the backstory of this demon, and there's some that—that's some pretty brutal stuff. Uh, some imagery there. No, I, I liked it. I, I still like Robertson's art. I still think it's good. Like, it's, you know, it's not prime Derek Robertson, but also, you know, he's not at his prime anymore. He's on the more, you know, back half of his career, and not every page is going to look stellar, but 
Tom Taylor is having fun with John's Constantine. We, I know we can write a fun John Constantine and that's what we're getting here. And this, uh, this is a pretty fun miniseries so far. I like it. And, uh, I, I think giving him the avenue of playing with the more younger John is uh, a lot of fun here. Cause it's not, uh, there's different kind of, you know, subtle attitude differences that are kind of fun to play with, but no, I like it. I, I kind of like the, the little demon kid. It's, it's going to be fun. And then uh, John and the devil uh, back and forth has been fun, but no, I, I still enjoy it. And then I, I don't know what happened in this book. Cause if you can tell me what was going on, that'd be great. But because it's a Christopher priest book, I still enjoyed it. Uh, us agent number one, uh, priest just just priest there's no christopher uh, on the top of his name on the credits page george's janty carl story on inks and then matt Milla on colors um and like i said this is definitely a christopher priest written comic book as uh upon the first issue i don't really know what's going on quite yet there's like this small mining town that's been taken over by this huge corporation's wholesale store which is definitely a stand-in for like costco or like maybe amazon and they're all and like the miners blew it up, but U.S. agent was on retainer to protect it. Um, he's at like this house, paranoid about receiving a bomb, um, so he keeps like abducting pizza guys. And this one, like that knows karate, like quickly like beats him up. Um, and he's like, "All right, I'm teaming up with you because he like, thinks he's maybe some sort of sleeper agent." I guess I don't like I said I don't know what's going on and I probably won't until I read all like five issues all at once because that's just how priest writes uh, they get to the crash site and apparently uh the you know the bomb gun off and it's John Walker's sister is responsible and that's her baddie all right probably makes more sense like I said in trade the way priest writes but uh funny moments here like US agent shield keeps breaking because <laughs> because it's not uh, as quality made as, you know, Captain America's is pretty funny. No reason given for the costume change here, but I do like the costume, the new the new suit. Um, I thought this was supposed to be a different character, but no, it's, it's John Walker even says on the cover. So I missed the mark on that one. But, you know, it's weird and zany, but I liked it. Vince, thoughts? Yeah, I enjoyed this. I mean, there are definitely some unanswered questions here, missing details. But I'm not sure that we'll get answers to that. I feel like this is just kind of priest, you know, throwing in weird stuff. And like, honestly, if, if, if obviously not if you grab this exact book, but if you grab some of those elements and put it in a book, you know, from 1972, you wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily stand out in the same way. I think that's my, that's at least my kind of theory. But yeah, the, I don't, the, the weirdest thing to me is, him throwing the pizza boys down the stairs. Like once they're not, once he discovers that they are not, they don't have the bomb, like just let them go. I don't, I don't get that part. Where yeah. It's like this weird element where he's like holding them hostage until he gets the one that is trying to use a bomb. And then, and then this, this, you know, old karate trained guy, like that's, that's what I was saying where like, this is just like a wacky new character that's just being thrown in this book. Yeah. Um, cool with it um yeah and i mean i'm sure the costume thing has something to do with the show or it, it, it definitely does uh it looks like there's the double-breasted yeah uh, kind of snap on the on the uh the disney plus suit i mean this is a kind of a good you know if, if you want priest on a marvel if you know marvel wants priest on a book 
this is kind of a good pick where you know it's relevant because it's you know tied into a show, but it's also something where he can just do whatever the hell he wants and it's not gonna it's gonna mean something, but it's not gonna mean anything. Yeah. Um, there's a really clever moment of an upside down speech bubble as John is flipped into the air. I don't I feel like I don't see that that often. Like, you know, people putting speech bubbles sideways and upside down and stuff. Um, it's definitely a priest book. I enjoyed it especially his strange rhythm for dialogue. Um, far as I know, the sister, which I think you definitely mentioned, uh, is a new character. Yeah. So I, I think this is, gives us a pass. We're both staying with it then. Yeah. Yeah. What you thought was the last issue of lost soldiers. Isn't the last issue of lost soldiers. Correct. Um, I actually considered dialing out on this cause I thought it was the last issue and I thought I wouldn't have that much to say. This is Alice Cotton, Castell and Guida's book. Um, we open with some child soldiers arguing about who's going to buy tacos for them when one of them gets shot in the head and then the other right through the neck. And these child soldiers have just been shot by our main character, um, who's just kind of like up on a roof, just in the middle of like Mexican cartel wars, just picking people off on all sides. And he's trying to bait out his nemesis guy that goes all the way back to Vietnam. And he continues to have flashbacks and hallucinations related to Nam. And then a bunch of Mexican police come for him finally. And he managed to take most, pretty much all of them down. There's some brutal scenes. Like there's a scene where there's already like 10 bodies and, you know, 10 dead bodies all over the ground. And there's another guy who like tried to stab him, but then he twists the knife and, and puts it in him. And they're on top of each other. And another another officer comes in and is like, you know, telling his other guy, hey, move, move. I mean, I, I can't get a good shot. And he and the, the guy says, fuck it. And he just starts shooting like into the other officer's back. And so the guy, the main character is like using this guy on his back as a, as a meat shield and then shoots the guy. It's, it's really crazy. Um, he finally comes face to face with the other guy. His nemesis, dude. There's a blaze of glory. There's an entire page that's all black, except for some very weird existential captions. And somehow in the end, he's still breathing, according to one of these officers. Um, the art and especially the colors continue to be the craziest stuff, you know, that I'm seeing in comics. There's actually another issue, as I said, I thought this was the last. Um, this is a fucking trip. I'm kind of coming back around on it. I mean, I don't know that I, I don't think I want to add this to my shelf when all is said and done, you know, in a trade, but it's, it's been worth the read, even if I don't really understand, you know, what the hell's going on. It's a little too trippy for me, but it's, uh, it's, it's worth the trip. Heading into Thor number nine, that's Donny Cates again, Nick Klein, Matt Wilson. Nick Klein is back after two issues absent. We had Aaron Cooter doing a small little two-issue arc. Uh, this is the part one of Prey, as Cates is bringing back Dr. Donald Blank. Uh, we saw hinted at the end of the last arc. Uh, with Thor running ragged, he wants a little bit more time to reset himself and thinks bringing back the good doctor will provide that. Cates writes that when Donald Blake isn't present, he's taken to the re this realm inside the world tree that is like this peaceful area that goes on forever, kind of think Pleasantville. Uh, though with the recent death of the world tree and the serpent, it's gone to hell. And Donald Blake had like a full blown uh, insane breakdown. Uh, so when Thor goes in there, 
Uh, he just sees the mad scribbles of of Donald Blake uh, present asking him like why Thor didn't come to save him. But obviously, like Thor w- wasn't able to hear it with everything else that was going on. Thor asks Loki to cover for him while he makes the switch. And he accepts only if Thor actually tells him what's going on, because even though Loki's no longer the god of mischief, he wants to be the god of stories and ancients. He can still smell a, uh, a lie a mile away. So he trades places with them. Thor trading places with Blake um, as he goes into that hellscape. And Thor never heard, like I said, heard the cries for help from from Blake. And then Donald Blake comes to Asgard and is like full bound crazy, quickly beats down Loki and snaps a, and then snaps the cane, sealing Thor in the realm, it looks like. So this is looks like to be another, you know, high stakes and fun arc by Donnie Cates. And then Nick Klein and Matt Wilson uh, art, wonderful as always, um, as now we're going to ca- have a crazy Donald Blake uh, running around, which should be, you know, very, very uh, entertaining to see how Cates uh, strings this all together. And then I'll head into that Texas blood number five. This is Chris Conn and Jacob Phillips. This was delayed by a week, but I don't think it, you know, any big harm was done. Uh, art and writing, I still think was fine here. Our main character, Randy, has got himself, you know, quite in the pickle as he sits over the body of the man he murdered in the last issue, uh, trying to clean himself up as like he kind of just keeps seeing the blood seep everywhere on him. And we get a little bit more surreal elements in here, too. But to make matters worse, his girlfriend has arrived and he's trying to, you know, help with that situation. Well, he has to no choice but to cast her out and have her run off as he, you know, probably says things he doesn't mean to her as he hears the clawing of the guy he thinks he thought he killed clawing up on the basement door. And he's like, well, I got to get her out of here before I can deal with that. Basically, you know, he's gone from the point of no return here, uh, which this really establishes. And then Sheriff Joe Bob is narrowing his case down uh, with his new deputy, Deputy Flores, um, gives him a huge hunch. And more great stuff here, I think, from Jacob Phillips and the art side of things completely paints a new image of Randy from the beginning of the book as he looks completely different and run down, just capturing like this exhausted self-destructed look we have on him with the more fleshed out, like, or I guess flushed color from his face. He's got like these deep kind of bloodshot eyes, which were captured really well. It might not be the best issue recently, but I think in terms of the art side, we can look at, you know, issue one, Randy and issue five, Randy, and uh, completely just see this, self-destruction take place which is what we've seen here vince thoughts on uh this you still liking uh that texas blood yeah it's still really good i think this may have been the least enticing issue for me so far but i've been very high on all the other issues um i just feel like the other issues kind of gave me a bit more i feel like this is also maybe actually i don't think so because i think we saw a similar scene with the uh the sheriff, but we, we got metaphorical stuff in this with the kind of pool of blood imagery. Um, and I feel like more, more or less the series has been a little bit more you know, literal or grounded. So it was interesting to see that so heavily uh, in this issue. Right. And you have X-Men Corner now. It's, it's back. You got two chapters to, to recap this week. Yep. In X-Men number 14 by Hickman, and the art is weird. So number 12 was announced, uh, not necessarily officially by Marvel. I think this was the comic book sites picking up on a social media post. So it may have not been 100% you know, uh, set in stone. But 
Number 12 was announced as Lionel Yu's final issue, but he's actually sharing space here with new artist Mahmoud Azwar. And I, mostly because I don't have a ton to say about this actual issue, I want to note that both of those are returning faces for the X-Men franchise, which in the grand scheme of things, I think is a little bit interesting when Hickman is, you know, the Hickman Dawn of X era is supposed to be all about treading new ground um, and not treading old ground. So it's kind of interesting, you know, Lionel Yu drew the flagship books literally 20 years ago at the turn of the century with Scott Lobdell finally finishing and then Claremont's weird second run. And then Osrar was the final artist on All New X-Men with Bendis and then the front man for the Disassembled Weekly book. But as for the actual book here, it's Apocalypse and his wife catching up. It's a big lore dump of Araco history again which has basically been what all these Hickman-related issues of this crossover have been. And I feel like they're the ones that I really don't care much about. Um, you know, as we move forward into the tournament stuff, I guess he has to fight his wife. They're matched up. I still don't 100% understand how this is going to set up, like if people are going to match up one-on-one -on -one, or if it's like all 20 people or however many get thrown in a, you know, in a battlefield and all have to figure it out. But they're on opposite sides, so something's going to happen. And there's also, like, part, as part of the lore setup, uh, it's like if he loses, obviously he dies, and, and Krakoa falls to Arako. But if he wins, he's destined to betray Krakoa or something because he has to, like, inherit this weird, like, helmet that his wife wears that she wears to, like, prevent the evil people from invading. I don't know. I don't really care. Marauders number 14... By Jerry Duggan. This is actually also co-written by Ben Percy, um, which is interesting. We've seen a lot of these uh, Ten of Swords issues with co-writers. Um, art by Stefano Caselli. So Saturnine's party is here with all the combatants co-mingling, sitting down at a stupid metal-shaped table. Logan is kind of plotting some stuff. He's trying to figure out, you know, how can we fuck this up and how can we get out of this um, or, you know, turn the tables. So Captain Britain is in like this very weird, like kind of not consensual relationship with Saturnine where she's like obsessed with him, but he's, you know, married to McGann. Um, and Logan's like, hey, you know, you could potentially, to Captain Britain, and I'm talking, uh, I'm talking Brian, um, not Betsy. Like, you know, you could potentially solve this for us. Just give Saturnine what she wants. And it's not clear if she's saying have sex with her or if he's advocating for Captain Britain to kill her um, but, or, or convince her to call off the tournament, whatever. Um, Storm dances with Death, uh, who points out all the other mutant characters in this crossover have died, which I think is more or less correct. But Storm, I believe, has never died. Uh, but obviously, you know, Wolverine, uh, Cypher, you know, magic, all the other characters, Apocalypse, obviously. Um, but it, it's this weird scene where Storm and Death have like this very extensive dance, like underwater and stuff. It's kind of weird, but it, it looks really cool. Then Logan, as they sit down at dinner, takes his claws and stabs them right into Saturnine. And that's where the issue ends. So, you know, considering Saturnine is like this super magical alternate dimension eternal wizard thing i don't imagine that this is you know her dead on the ground um, but we'll see with the next chapter also 
at the last second, um, war for Morocco poisons Logan's food, but that's before he gets up out of his chair to stab her. And I don't imagine as soon as he stabs her, he's going to sit back down and devour, you know, his meal. Um, so I don't know if that, like, it would be kind of weird to have factors in actually. I don't know. Um, and it's Logan. It, it doesn't fucking matter unless it's like some really weird substance. I don't know. This was definitely more enjoyable and captive of my intention than the X-Men issue. This had some actual characterization for these Racco folks, as well as some of the X-Men characters. Um, there's a really good scene with Gorgon and Magic interacting with one of the Racco members. Uh, Storm has really good characterization. The uh, Logan characterization, I feel like it is slightly iffy in some moments here, but like the Hickman issues have no characterization. They're boring as shit. They read like history textbooks and uh, we'll see. I think this is chapter 14 or something. So we probably only got like three weeks left. With that is the rep. And this is our final book of the regular rundown. It's still an X-Men book. This is the debut of Wolverine black, white and blood. Number one. Uh, so yeah, this is this is essentially Wolverine Black and White, very similar to Batman Black and White. Uh, both of these are an anthology series. We get three stories inside this first issue, and I think Batman Black and White is coming back next month in December, if we remember right. It might be later than that, but I know it's definitely coming back. Uh, but you know, this is Black, White, and Red, so we're accentuating the Black, White, and uh, the Red being the blood. Um, so uh, you know, cool visuals here uh, that are all going to be gory, but they can get away with it. Um, I think we get three pretty fun Wolverine stories here. We get the beast within them. This is Jerry Duggan, Andy Kubert, and then I shall be a wolf with Ro Matthew Rosenberg, Joshua Kassara, and then cabin fever all by Declan Shalvey. Um, I liked all three of them. They're all taking place in three different distinct eras of Wolverine. The first one is like a weapon X project story. And then Kassara shines, I think with the, with Nick Fury, uh, kind of a classic Wolverine, Nick Fury team up. Uh, with OG Nick Fury, not uh, Nick Fury Jr. Uh, so, you know, nice to see him come back after already, you know, uh, we saw him established, come back officially uh, with Fantastic Four 25 last week. And then uh, the Declan Shalvey story uh, provides some fun and tragic moments for Wolverine in Canada. And it looks like uh, he's in the new X-Men era with the jacket and the belt buckle uh, around there too but you know i don't want to place anything but that's definitely the look that that one has um i thought you know all very bloody and red but oh so good uh i liked all the stories in here i know you're going to be annoyed by the the ending of i shall be a wolf with the the bomb being pl planted inside wolverine but i thought that was a pretty a pretty fun and good touch there um and you know it doesn't break anything it's just a simple you know anthology story that's about eight pages but no uh, I think this is really, really shined. Um, I think Joshua Kassara, though, definitely is proving to be one of like the rising Wolverine artists in lore. I, he's done a really, really good job with him in X Force, and uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm excited to see what what he does with Wolverine uh, in the coming years. Here, if you know, if he has a long standing run in X Force, maybe he comes over and uh, you know draws X Men. We already know uh, Adam Kubert is you know, has a lot of history with the character. Um, and then I also enjoyed the Declan Shalvey story, but uh, what did you think here on uh, this kind of new anthology book? Yeah, I don't like the Rosenberg stories ending. 
I mean, it's a good gag. It's funny. It's badass. But Wolverine having the, the bomb explode in his chest and then, you know, obviously surviving to see the next day or, or a couple days, you know, who, who knows how long it takes took him to regenerate. But the, that's a stupid, I don't, I just don't like that, you know, version of Wolverine where you can just be blown to absolute bits. Because I don't care if it's like the smallest bomb ever stuck yeah. in the middle of the chest there would not be any body parts to even put next to each other. Um, Kassara's part looks very nice in black and white with the tone work. Uh, there's the Shalvi splash page is really metal as fuck. Um, they preview, I mean, they know the stories that are going to be in the next issue. Next issue, way less exciting than this one. Uh, the only one that I'm really intrigued by is Claremont and LaRocca working together again. And I don't even, I don't even, expect that LaRocca is going to look like very interesting in black and white. Um, and that's kind of the difference here. Like this was enjoyable. Like I, this was nice, but it didn't feel like they really like a hundred percent leaned into kind of the artistic opportunity here and also made this like a prestige thing. And that's how I would compare it to black Batman, black and white, because the, you know, the idea there was getting legends to do these like short stories on Batman and black and white, you know, across the various Batman black and white stories, you had names like Joe Kubert, Bruce Tim, Howard Chaykin, Simonson, Corbin, Zafino, Bisley, Sienkiewicz, Bolin, Katsuhiro Otomo, so on and so on. And, you know, obviously I'm pulling from a lot of issues there. Um, and granted, the new Batman black and white series doesn't seem to be hitting quite at that weight class either, but it still feels more artistically substantial than this. This just kind of feels like, you know, we want another Wolverine book on the stands and here's some people who are already doing work for us or like, you know, seeing Shalvi's nice, like pulling in Shalvi, that's a nice, you know, guest spot on here. But otherwise it's like, here are people who that are drawing Wolverine already in the ongoing books doing a black and white story. I don't know. It, like, it's still a really great issue, but yeah, possible not to compare it to Batman black and white. And if you make that comparison, it comes up miles short. In my opinion. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we can hold out hope. Maybe we can get an art and Adam story. Maybe we can get a, a Mark Silvestri to do eight pages. You know, I don't think that's asking a lot. And I think they'd be happy. We know art Adams is already providing covers more recently for the, the the kind of relaunched Marvel comics presents that was only like six issues. Um, but you know, I, I, we'll, we'll see how it goes. You know, I think this was still a strong number one, obviously, like you said, issue two, not, you know, the lineup, not as great as issue one, but maybe, uh, you know, maybe CB Sabolsky will make some calls here and, uh, you know, maybe we'll get some prestige artists on this. Yeah, I mean, if they want to reach for it and if it, you know, if they're allowed to budget for it, there's definitely some names even within kind of what you'd expect from Marvel that would be very interesting here. You mentioned some, you know, you could get Frank Cho probably to do a short story here. Um, other names like that. There's definitely things that they could go to. Um, but it's just weird that two out of three are, you know, on the right. book. Right? I'm sure Ryan Otley could do a fun one. Yeah. That's you know, uh, not, by the way, I, I, yeah, don't take this as like Marvel doesn't have any great prestige artists. No, they do. It's just, you know, we want to see who, what, di you know, who, who do they dip into the bag of tricks to do a big premiere story on? Uh, no, I, there's still plenty of Marvel artists that I'd love to see work on this book.
Um, but that's it for the regular rundown as Vince, you had the, the retro book on a, I don't know what this was um, because it read nonsensical to me where I don't know what I was reading, but the retro book from December, 1992 for DC uh, new Titans number 93. Yes. This issue is written by Marv Wolfman has the entire you know, new Titan stuff art by Tom Grummet and a little bit of other people. Um, am I lagging? Maybe not. So you still have Nightwing, Starfire, Changeling, Cyborg. It's- okay. Um, you still have some of the core team members, but they're now joined by Red Star, who's a Russian superhero, Panther, and Baby Wildebeest, but he's like kind of more known as Wildebeest now. Um, but and Cyborg's here, but it doesn't matter. He's like literally bricked. So Cyborg being here doesn't matter. So this is the issue immediately following Total Chaos, which was a nine-part crossover between three titles. And Total Chaos is that the team Titans from the future go back in time to kill Lord Chaos before he's born. And that baby's mother happens to be Donna Troy, while in the middle, at the same time that's happening, the Titans are supposed to be capturing, taking in Deathstroke. And then Lord Chaos time travels back as well. Um, And that nine-part crossover shortly followed the original Titans Hunt story, which lasted a whole 13 issues and introduced half of these characters that people may not be as familiar with to the Titans. So this issue is kind of a breather after that, those nonstop blockbusters for like a year and a half, but not quite to the same extent as another issue, which is cap, which is a footnoted at some point in here, the sellout special, which was the same kind of breather, but more comedic. So Gar, Changeling, you know, modern readers will know him more as Beast Boy. So he's kind of a creep and, and also an asshole. Um, but that's kind of just like all how he always was back then in the original Titans comics. So you just kind of kind of roll with that. I mean, people who are more familiar with, you know, the Jeff Johns era or, or the TV show. Like there's a little bit, you can tell like some of his modern characterization came from this. You know, he's usually like, you know, quick-witted and kind of sarcastic and, and snappy and a little mischievous nowadays. But in this, he's like making like creepy comments towards Starfire and, you know, other things. Um, so you just kind of got to roll with that. Um, and then on that same kind of note, there's a scene where Corey's getting catcalled by construction workers. Uh, Dick and Corey go on a date and he's wearing stupid hair pieces and makeup to be undercover next to his six foot orange girlfriend with a mountain of hair and green eyes. It's kind of weird. Um, there's some, uh, I, yeah, I mean, the actual like story here in the writing, it's really weird. Um, there's a lot of things that feel really dated. You know, Wolfman was not really on fire at this point. Uh, the, the cool thing in this issue is there are a bit of like little meta segments. There's like, a like within the you know our comic book someone opens like a catalog for titans action figures and then later on Corey, um you know one of the team titans has a secret has like you know behind her back gotten Corey's like fo- you know lewd photographs in like a playboy like magazine so we see adam hughes doing some pinups of starfire in here 
And there's also the Titans at this point have this like, I don't think it's officially licensed. They have like a bootleg TV show starring them, an like a cartoon. And then we have like a couple pages of a tie-in comic book for that cartoon in this comic book. Um, so I think actually all of those sequences are actually really cool and they're kind of fun with the format and everything. Um, but on top of that, I picked this because it's a kind of a decent approximation and a good kind of standalone, you know, peek into basically how far this book has strayed a dozen years after Wolfman and Perez brought the Titans back in the eighties. This is a very nineties book. All the male, like, I think literally all the male characters have mullets of some sort. But at the same time, Tom Grummet's art, just like barely, it, it is 90s, but it's not 90s. It's kind of like what you think of, of DC in the 90s, where it's like, you can tell that it's 90s art just by looking at it, but it's not actually like exaggerated and like cool in an image or Marvel era way. Um, and then just for reference, this is the same time as Executioner's Song. So Claremont is actually already gone X-Men. Um, his, his run was longer than Wolfman's on Titans, but he started five years before. Um, so I thought this was just a very interesting peek at the Titans franchise in this era. And I'm very interested to hear what you think. I, I kind of hate this. Like, it's just, I, I don't, it was like a fever dream. It was like, what did I just read? I was like, oh, okay, that's Nightwing. That's Beast Boy, Changeling. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Like, it was like, all right, the heavy hitters and then a bunch of nobodies, kind of. It, I, the, the dialogue was very weird to me. And I don't know if it was the lettering or the, the way the dialogue was going off. I couldn't tell who was speaking to who at points a lot of the time. And I don't know if that's just because my brain has been ravaged after this week. So, and this was the final book I read where it was just like, okay, any cognitive processing I have has just been gone, but I, I don't know what was going on here. Uh, and then like the, the pinups were just like weird and kind of like sleazy. It's like, ah, oh, we got to put eye candy in there for people who are still buying Titans after 12 years. Um, it, it, it's all so weird. Um, it, and then like, why they call themselves team Titans. I, I don't, it, it, it's so weird to me uh, with the different like kind of team names and all that. It's, you know, but uh, yeah, this is definitely not one of my favorites uh, for the retro book. Yeah. This is basically, you know, DC has been putting out omnibus, you know, nice hard covers of the Titan series. They have a fifth volume, which is essentially going to be like a companion in between title. And then we'll have to see they have they have to do another volume because it's Perez back. Um, I, I imagine they might do a new volume one because it'll then be new Titans because you can see we're talking about new Titans number 93, not new Teen Titans because they dropped that word. Um, but then, you know, if they keep going and keep going, my ideal, you know, what I would want ideally would stop literally right before the decision. Um, I, this would be where I'd jump off. Um, and then as far as the, the context, at the very end, they tease some things. There's a character called Phantasm, um, which is probably also not super familiar to a lot of people. But at the end, the tease here is moving slowly towards issue 100, that range, um, 
because that's the attempted marriage of Dick and Corey, which gets interrupted and doesn't go through because of Raven coming back and shenanigans and she has a heel turn and stuff like that. Um, and then the book just falls apart even more. And even the characters you recognize here aren't in the book. Right, right. Yeah, it's it, it's almost written like a bad sitcom. Like that's kind of what it is felt like to me. But I don't know if that's just because this is more of a, a down, like light breezier issue after you said like there is a bunch of action based crossovers here. So yeah. I don't know if that's the case or just that's just how Marv Wolfman was writing in 1992. I mean, with the Teen Titans in as well, there's like one character on that team, which again was like literally introduced in last arc um, in the middle of crossover. There's one character there who's like flirting with Dick. So now, despite the fact that Dick and Corey are, are you know, going to get married in any issues or attempt to, Wolfman's trying to write a love triangle. It's very strange um, and it doesn't work well. It's kind of skeevy and just awkward. And then <laughs> the Changeling stuff is so dated. And, ba- and Baby Wildebeest is, is a very, very annoying character as well. Yeah. So with that, that's that's all the books we have for you this week. Picks of the week, Vince. I, I feel like we both know what it's going to be. Crossover. Yeah, crossover. E- easily. And, you know, if you want to know why, just go back and, you know, watch us talk about it there. Anything else to report for this week? Um, any other standouts? I, I think it was a kind of strong week for books. Uh, it was a big it was a big release week. Um, Unlike last week, where it kind of felt like I was grasping at straws to pick something, uh, and I know you definitely were because you had like hardly anything to read last week, but it jumped up a whole lot heavier for this week. But uh, that's our show for this week. Um, that's all I have, other than you know, keep being safe out there and you know, take the proper precautions and PPE and wear a mask when you go outside <laughs> and go vote. Uh, yeah, it's. As we are recording this, we'll we'll end our recording probably around just after a quarter after midnight on November seventh, and uh, nothing has been called yet. But you know that's that's the snapshot of time to where we are at this moment here. As like I said, uh, this week has felt like a month, <laughs> and hopefully we'll. We, we might it, it's all looking like we're going to have a new president by at least uh, maybe Saturday or Sunday now at this point. So we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out. But, you know, hopefully you, go, you did go out and vote and, uh, you know, we'll see how these results rein in. But we did just still have the largest case numbers uh, in the nation through this week. So please keep remembering to uh, take the proper precautions and uh, wear a mask, wash your hands out there and stay safe. and. That's all the comic books we have to talk to you about this week, and hopefully we're able to provide some sort of interfa- some sort of entertainment for you in what I'm sure was to be a very stressful and uh, you know anxiety riddled week for everyone. So hopefully we're able to settle you there in some way, shape, or form. But we'll be back next week with more books. That's all I've got. Bye.